Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're going to be in Genesis 34 tonight. And we'll see how far we get. We'll for sure get through two chapters tonight. But 36 is a genealogy. So if we could end on a fizzle tonight and just get through that chapter, then next week we can start in on Joseph, which are those are kind of fun stories. That said, we're closing in. We only have, when we get done with this tonight, we'll only have 14 chapters left in Genesis. So that's a huge one of the biggest books in the Bible will be done and we'll be moving on to Exodus. So time passes. So um, last time we talked, we talked about Jacob and he kind of came back. He made amends with Esau just to get us in context. And for me, at least, it really stuck that idea of Jacob wrestling with the man or Jesus. If you look at um, Yeshua as an appearance in, in the physical sense, and him grabbing onto the ankle, wanting the blessing from Jesus. And I think it's such a cool idea that the blessing is something we reach out, we struggle for, we wrestle for it, and we grab onto Jesus until we get it. And I think that's such a neat idea. And I'm, I'm saying that as a happy note, because we're going to start 34 tonight as an amazingly tough passage of the Bible. This is one of those passages that trips people up. It disturbs them. It is 34 is a disturbing chapter. It's hard to do it. In context and in the sense, we've seen the people of God have good moments where they're close to God, and we've seen the people of God have not so good moments further away from God. What I like about the Bible is that it's truthful. If you're going to write the history of your people, you don't write about rape and murder, like unless it's actually what happened. And God inspires his people to be truthful, and that the truthfulness is more important than making ourselves look good. So if there's any lesson to be learned from that chapter, that would be the first one. I'm just giving it up front um, as we get into it. It's a tough chapter. I've never heard this chapter preached on a Sunday morning for good reason. Like, I, it's just not the kind of thing that as a pastor you really want to cover this with a congregation. Um, but remember, God had told them to return to the land of uh, Bethel, Mora in Genesis 31. Because um, God said, I'm the God of Bethel where thou anointest the pillar and thou vowed to, made a vow to me, now arise, get out of this land and go into that land. But Jacob doesn't do it. He stops in this place called Shechem. And like Abraham went to Egypt and he shouldn't have gone to Egypt, Isaac stayed in the Holy Land and in Canaan and he was blessed. Jacob's supposed to go back to where Abraham tells him to go, but he doesn't move that fast. Um... And so in Genesis 33, it says, And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So he's in Canaan, but he's not where God told him to go in Canaan. And he came from uh, Paddan Aram and pitched his tent before the city, which is a phrasing that we know is trouble. It was for Lot. Pitching your tent by the city is not always good. It's better if you're like Isaac and you pitch your tent where God is, right? So in Genesis 13, Abraham uh, dwelled in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. So there's a comparison there. So that's a clue for us that when we get into this chapter, chapter 34, uh, the end of 33 was kind of a clue for us that Jacob's not going to, this isn't going to go well for him in Shechem. He's toying with the people of the world or the Philistines or the pagan people that are right next to him, and it's not going to be good. So how do you come into this chapter and, and do it? And if you're glancing ahead at all, you see where this is going. And one of the things that hit me is Jacob has gotten older, matured. He's got his kids and his family. And you think to yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen to a parent? And the worst thing that could happen to your parent is that something happens to your kids. And in this chapter, we're going to see something horrible happen to Jacob's daughter. And we're going to see something horrible happen to two of his sons. And that if you look at the chapter kind of like that, you think that's the worst. So I looked up 
they've done studies. What's the biggest fear of parents? And if you look at the list, there's not a lot of delineation for it. 30%, the worst that can happen, the worst fear that a parent has is that their kid's going to get hurt. 25% that their kid would get attacked. 23% that their kids wouldn't feel safe. 14% that your kid would get abducted. And 8% that they get bullied. Other than the bullying, you take out that 8%, Jacob's about to experience all of the other four with his daughter, Dinah. She gets abducted. She gets attacked. She clearly wouldn't feel safe anymore. And there's a hurt that's done in her life that's just horrible and, 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 and uh, hard to deal with. That dog, I tell you. So we'll start in the chapter. I know that's a lot of setup for this, but this is a, a tough chapter. And if you look at like just that angle of like that Jacob is going through this, it starts to explain his behavior later on. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he laid with her and he violated her. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, and said, get me this young woman as a wife. Dinah would have probably have been about 15 or 16 years old at this point. Um, she would have been unattended, which would have been kind of unheard of in either one of these societies. Women shouldn't have been walking around by themselves, and this is why. Uh, the religious practices um, kind of support this on the pagan side. You're going to see that the prince is not apologetic about this rape at all, because as the prince of the land in Hivite and Philistine and Hammerite cultures, it was perfectly okay for an unattended woman to be attacked, and it was how it was there. That's a huge shift, because last time we saw this same people group with Isaac, they... Rebecca was left alone because she was somebody's sister. And the time before that, when we saw this people group, Sarah was brought into a, a harem with the king for a long period of time and was not violated in any way. So women's the respect for women in this, what will soon be the Philistines, has degenerated considerably each of the times we've seen them. So this third time we see them dealing with women, they're just raping people when they see them. There's no period of courtship, there's no uh, respect for wives, um, and they're just being horrible. So to do this to a young woman is a terrifying experience uh, for her and, and a horrible thing to experience. So um, his soul was, that, that idea of his soul was, um, in verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to her. Uh, the soul there, that word is talking about a passion or an appetite. Um, it's a selfish passion. It's not the kind of soul, soulmate kind of thing that we've built up in our culture. Like my soul loves you. It's not that kind of thing. It's that he pines for it like shadow pines for his bone. Uh, it's an appetite kind of passion. So Shechem, the rapist, goes to his dad and he says, "Get me this girl." Um, to me, that strikes like this prince is kind of a spoiled brat. Gets whatever he wants. Uh, so something has changed here, and this has just been different with these people, and we see this happening. So in verse 5, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. I'm not sure how Jacob would have heard this. Like, how did the news get back to him? Because they've also abducted Dinah. She's now in that household. Um, why he holds his peace, you would think that it's because the news is horrifying to him. Maybe he doesn't know what to do. Jacob is not being a good dad. His daughter's off unattended. Um, he's not watching after his sons with the livestock. So he's staying home. And I, it makes me think of when David started staying home. That's when he got into trouble with Bathsheba. He should be out doing his work, and he's not. Um, so there might be a sense of guilt from Jacob that he blames himself for this. But he holds his peace. The word is sharash in the Hebrew. Uh, it means to engrave, to cut something in. So it's a really interesting word for he held his peace. Um, it can also be used to just be silent or to be dumbstruck. So the news hits him in such a way that he can't speak. Um, so that's the worst that could happen. I was praying about this chapter and I didn't quite connect the parental angle on it. I was trying to think of something else. 
And so I go to bed and I'm like, Lord, help me to see something here that I'm not seeing. Like, what's the lesson that I'm supposed to get out of this? So I had two dreams that night. One woke me up at three o'clock, one woke me up at five o'clock. The first dream is we were out taking a hike for Steph's birthday at a state park where there were waterfalls. And it was this big like river that we had to cross that had waterfalls, but they were frozen over. So we go over there and I'm in panic fear mode as a dad because I can hear the water rushing underneath the ice. Like this is an active river. And I think we shouldn't be out on this ice. Nobody else is out on the ice, but no, Steph has to go out on the ice. <laughs> so she's going out and Katie wants to go look over the edge of the frozen waterfall because she thinks it would be cool. So I hear the ice crack and in the dream, you start thinking it and it's about to happen. She goes right over the waterfall. When she hits the ice at the bottom, she goes right through the ice. As a dad, I'm, if I jump down, I'm gonna go right through the ice too. How do I get to my daughter? The current starts taking Katie under and she's grabbing and I can see her little hands grabbing onto the edge of the ice and I'm terrified. Like I don't, so I'm taking my coat off and trying to get my coat down to where she can grab it and eventually I'm like, I just gotta dive in. And at this point I wake up and I'm just in that mode where everything's anxious and you're like, I just watched my daughter die. It's the worst thing that could happen. And that's where I started to think, this is the worst thing that could happen to Jacob. This is his precious daughter gets violated. It's horrible. Not to mention from Dinah's perspective, but we don't get Dinah's perspective in this chapter. And it's not like the Bible doesn't give the female perspective. It has in a lot of other stories. We got to really see inside Rebecca and Sarah, but in this case, we, they don't even really mention her other than that this happened to her. And that's kind of a, there's a blind spot there in the storytelling. They really focus on Jacob and the brothers from here forward, which is an interesting thing. The second dream I had, this one's just funny because at this point I, I didn't quite get it with the Katie dream. And I'm not saying that the Lord always gives you things in dreams, but in this case, I really felt like that's what I needed to say about this chapter. This is about parenting. This is about what happens when you don't parent. The worst could happen. So with Grant, this is going to sound horrible. You're going to think less of me. Grant comes out of his bedroom in the morning and he's got paper clips hanging out his self-pierced ears because he's going full rock and roll. And in my dream, I just look at him and I'm like, Grant, paper clips? Like, if you want to go earrings, I get it. You're a musician. You may need to go with the look. Let's go buy you some proper studs and something sanitary and he goes I'll wear whatever I want to wear total defiance and I'm like no Grant don't be a fool and I'm like Grant who are you trying to impress like really paper clips like are you is there a girl is there I don't understand you've been such a level-headed person and now you're going off the rails and he goes you want to see off the rails I'll show you off the rails goes back into his bedroom comes out and he looks like Ziggy Stardust, like David Bowie in the 70s. Eyeshadow, blue eyeshadow, makeup, three paper clips. It's like, that's off the rails. And his ears are kind of bleeding. And I'm just, and I wake up and I'm like, no more, Lord. Don't send the third ghost of Christmas past. What's the worst that could happen is that your son is foolish and goes off the rails. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Jacob. Where the heck am I? <laughs> All right. Jacob's silence is contrasted by his son's violence, the way in which they go go off the rails. So there you go. Now you've seen inside my worst fears. Then Hamor, and we're only on verse 6. No way do we get through three chapters tonight. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry. I think that's an understatement given what they're about to do. Because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not be done. Mm -hmm. So ought not be done means there's a moral code somewhere in the universe. You don't do these things. Um, I think it's interesting that Hamor came to talk with Jacob. At this point, Jacob is actually a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and it's kind of like when Laban spoke for Rebecca, Jacob's going to speak for his daughter Dinah in this case. So in verse 7, we see a commentary that gives us the motivation and the reasons for what's about to come. They're angry because their sister was raped. And something must be done about that. It has to be amended in their head. They're like Italians, vengeance. It has to happen. 
But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son longs for your daughter. My son wants your daughter. Can you give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves so that you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell in it, trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. So this is much more than just the prince wanting a daughter at this point. He wants the two families, the two towns, the two groups of people to completely intermarry and just be one people. And that one people wouldn't be under Jacob. It would be under... Um, It'd be under the the Hamor, the Hittites. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I'll give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. So this is an interesting motivation. And again, we don't see Dinah's reaction to this. If it didn't say he violated her, you would think this is just a young couple romancing and they want to run off to the hills together, tra-la-la, but they've already said he violated her first and then he fell in love with her? Like, this is an odd thing. Um, The world often gives us things that are really tempting, but in this case, this endangers God's plan. Intermarrying with these people is not what God wants to set up the, the nation. So it sets us up for one of those but God but in this chapter, God isn't even mentioned, not once. There's nowhere in this chapter where God's even talked about. So Shechem's trying to expand the situation, make an international agreement between two nations, and he wants all of their daughters. Again, there's no sign of remorse. This culture has gone down a hole where there's simply no accounting for the rape, and there, there's no honor here, and apparently money just makes everything okay with these people. So... They're not going to make this a legion in, in the same way that the I think God's people don't make allegiances with this kind of people, and they're not about to do that. I don't know if this is what God would want either, but the sons of Jacob, again, in verse 13, but, so there's going to be an interruption of this path, but the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah or their sister, and he said to them, we can't do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. So it's not a problem uniting nations. The problem is you're not circumcised. And that would be a reproach to us. Like the rape is no big thing. It's the problem. The problem is you have foreskins. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you become as we are and every male among you is circumcised, then we will give you our daughters and we will take our da- your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Okay? So this is pretty disgraceful because they're taking very sinful, deceitful things and they're doing it in God's name because the circumcision is a covenant. We've read that. This is a holy covenant between God's people and God. And they're going to take that covenant and use it as a negotiating tactic and a tool for deceit. And this gets to be pretty sad. And we see it all the time when people say they're doing things in the name of God and they're doing horrible things. And throughout history, we as Christians still have to pay the price of groups of Christian doing horrible things in God's name because forevermore the people that don't want to follow God say, well, I'm not for following a, a religion that did the Crusades or did the Spanish Inquisition or killed witches in Salem. So there's always these things where Christians did some killing and then we forevermore have that reputation to answer for. Um, And they do it in God's name, which is, I think, horrible. That said, saying the whole religious piece of it, it's a brilliant military tactic. You want to take down a whole city of men? Take them down this way. It's not a dumb thing to do. So another way to read this is they're being really smart because there's only a few of these brothers, and they're going to be able to take out a whole city, a whole army of men because they're going to be laid low because they're going to agree to it. So in verse 18, and I'm not, I didn't, I don't want to say that first because it's like you're celebrating, oh, this is brilliant. They're all going to cut their privates and then they're going to take them out. And and the words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay in to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And he was more honorable than all of the household of his father. So that's a cue to how horrible these people were. If he's the most honorable among them, this is not the kind of people you want to be making a deal with. I remember reading that. I was just like, what? Wait. 
I was looking up all the words, and it pretty much means what it's translated as. And you're thinking, wow. Verse 20, Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city, and they spoke with the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, this land is large enough for them. But let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. So they're faking their religiosity in order to make this agreement, but they're really fueled. They give When they go talk to their own people, they give the reason why this is a good deal. It's greed and lust, right? So either the Hivite women were really homely and they're really excited about this, or they want the wealth that Jacob had accumulated and Isaac had accumulated. The sons of Jacob are also faking religion, but they're being fueled by vengeance and anger. So there's evil motivations behind both groups of people, and they're using the circumcision and the covenant as a justification for both of their evil ways. God is ignored by both groups of people. So I don't think Jacob's sons get off the hook for this. And they're not. Later in the Bible, it actually holds them accountable to this. Um, so God gets used in this chapter, but isn't really mentioned or called upon. Verse 22, only on this condition, condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people if every male is among us is circumcised as they're circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, every animal, they'll be ours. And only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out to the gate of the city. You can't read this and not put yourself in the role of these men. So your leader comes home from a negotiation with those rich herds people in the hills. And they come back and say, we're going to all get circumcised together. Let's do it. There's no society in the world where that's a normal request, right? There had to be people in the city that were like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine to leave that alone for now. But they all did it. They must have really been pining after those sheep and that livestock and the wealth that was up in those hills because the justification they're given is greed. Like, we're going to get rich if we do this. If that's all it takes for a city, that's all they want, let's do it. The only on this condition, the only thing they want is for us to get circumcised. So let's get circumcised. It's kind of amazing what people of the world will do for money and lust. That those two motivators can get people to do really stupid things. And this is pretty stupid. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. <laughs> that... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. So I'm sure as they're killing males and hearing that other males are getting killed, you can imagine the amount of pain they're in because it's not like they get up and defend themselves. You know, they can hear this slaughter going on throughout the city. And I don't mean to make light of it. It's mass murder. There's no pretty way to dress this up. It's the verse that people I know that want to critique the Bible will come to this chapter and say, look, they murdered people. And all you can say is, look, God's not involved. And that's, it's history. And they're trying to report history, but it's not like God's endorsing these things. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and they went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and the plunder to the city because their sister had been defiled. And they took their sheep and their oxen and their donkeys and what was in the city and what was in the field and all of their wealth and their little ones and their wives took, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in their houses. So Jacob's sons actually take everything that they, people of Shechem thought they were going to get. Is this bad? Yes, it's pure slaughter. And there's no defense. I'm not going to try to defend it. Is there any good left in this? Well, we have solved the problem of the daughters of Jacob being defiled. Um, if you think about it, this is what world's the world's justice looks like. If somebody does you wrong, you put them in jail, you kill them, there's punishment, there's justice. Jacob's leadership is non-existent. He's not leading his family at this point. Um, and you've gotten rid of an entire group of people that were idolatrous, and seemingly these people are okay with rape. So now these people, so in other words, if you left these people here and negotiated with them, you still have to worry about your next daughter going out. Simeon and Levi would have to worry about when they have daughters, are they going to get raped too? Is this just now the normal international relationship with these people? So you've got a whole group of people. The question is, could God have dealt with it in God's way? 
or are Simeon and Levi somehow doing God's will by doing this? And I would venture to say, they're not doing God's will. Vengeance is the Lord, saith the Lord. It's his, he would have taken care of it. And later on in the Bible, angels of God, we've already seen them wipe out five cities with Sodom, right? So when God can do this kind of thing and has historically, and he'll do it again. He wipes out hundreds of thousands of Assyrians in Hezekiah's day. So it's not like God has an issue with taking the life that he gave in the first place, but it shouldn't have been Simeon, Simeon and Levi doing this. In verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. He's not concerned about the murder either, apparently. What's bad to him is now he's in embarrassment. Remember Abraham was honored by the people in the land and had great relationships with them. But, Jake, but Jacob's concern is now he's not going to get that honor. He's now a terror to these people. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, since I am few in number, they're going to gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. So Jacob's living in fear at this point. What happened to him grabbing onto the blessing of God? He saw an angel army next to his camp, and now he's fearful of these people killing him and wiping him out because of what's been done. So Jacob is not... He's backslidden. There's something going on here with them. But they said in verse 31, should he treat our sister like a harlot? And so their justification is consistent. But they raped our sister. They raped your daughter. Isn't that a concern to you, Dad? Isn't that a problem? So sin's going to have some long-term effects. Later on, both Simeon and Levi are not going to get allotments of land when the land gets split up amongst the, the sons of Jacob. Uh, for good and bad reasons, Simon and Levi are instruments of cruelty, and therefore they're not going to get allotments of land in this area. Or, or, I'm sorry, this is Genesis 49 when they give out the land. Simon and Levi are brothers and instruments of cruelty. They're in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council, nor m let my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's God talking about the two families. So God's going to punish them for what they did, which is why we can read it with confidence and think this was a bad thing, um, because they're going to get punished for it. You just have to keep reading to Genesis 49 to see it. Simeon was dissolved as a tribe. His people were scattered all over the place. And... He, it really becomes part of Judah in that they're split up. Levi's different, though, because the group of Levites, Levi, not our Levi, but <laughs> Levi the people, he is also divided up and doesn't get an allotment of land. But if you remember, the Levites become the priests. So why is Simeon cursed and Levi is blessed, but they both don't get land, which keeps this, this promise that's being made. And part of it is in Exodus 32, the Levites are the only tribe that's faithful during the whole golden calf episode. They're the ones that don't worship the golden calf. So God brings them back in and blesses them, but they too are split up and they don't get land. But it's a good thing for them. So then the story keeps going. Then Jacob said in, in chapter 35, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Or then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared before you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So going up to Bethel, we think of up as going up north, but up to Bethel here would have been going south, and it's about a day's journey south. In other words, Jacob, when he sh stopped in Shechem, he shouldn't have stopped there in the first place. All of this could have been avoided if he just listened to God in the first place and led his family to where they should have been. If he returned to where he's being told to go now, he would have been back by Mount Moriah, Hebron, Mamre, in the Bethlehem area, and all sorts of good things happen to God's people when they hang out in those hills, right? That's where Abraham was blessed, that's where Isaac is blessed, and that's where Jacob should have gotten to. So where in chapter 34, God isn't mentioned at all, in chapter 35, God's going to get it mentioned 11 times. That's just the Israel and Bethel uses, house of God, and wrestles with God. Um, oh, I'm sorry, God himself 11 times, plus the use of Israel and Bethel if those count there's even more. So chapter 35 is filled with God's intervention with the family. And Jacob said to his household in verse 2, and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. 
In other words, Jacob's taken over his family. He's starting to lead and he's saying, enough of this stuff. Let's get rid of the idols. Remember, he has idols that came with him, with his wife, who brought idols in when they left Laban. So those idols seem to have, now it's plural, it's not an idol, there's many of them. So he's let that sort of thing go in his home and he's basically saying, we got to clean up our act. This is horrible. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in my day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. He's remembering God was with him once and he's returning to that place. A lot like Abraham did when he kind of wanted to get back to God, he goes back to where he met God. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, all of them, and the earrings which were in their ears. Again, maybe that's where the paper clips came from. <laughs> you never know, but something with the earrings seems to have been uh, a pagan practice at the time. Uh, by the way, you see these weird like Christian sects where they're like, see, women shouldn't wear earrings. Right there, it says it. The earrings are bad. And it's kind of like, I, in context, that's not what's going on here. There's something else going on with the earrings. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. He buries them in the ground. But he buries them by a certain tree so he could maybe find them again someday. I don't know if that's something where he should have just buried them randomly. Jacob is still parenting now, and he has he's trying to get his kids to turn back to the Lord because the kids are becoming just like the world with the murder and everything else. Um, so he returns to where God met him last, and this is not the first time. This particular location was in Genesis 13, Genesis 14, Genesis 18, Genesis 23. There's a pattern. When you come to where God wants you, he blesses you, and he's about to bless them too. Throughout his life, God meets us in a place where we can find and hear him, and he gives us physical, emotional, and spiritual peace. Revelations 2, 4, and 5 says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not, and have found them liars, and you've persevered and you have patience, and you've labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And he's talking to one of the churches. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jacob is trying to reboot his family here. He's trying to repent. He's going back to his first love and doing those first things first. God solved the Laban issue threat, the Laban Esau threat before, and now he's repenting from internal things. So before Jacob was scared of Laban, then he was scared of Esau. Now he's scared of what happens in his own family with his own kids, and he's got to figure out how to do this. So where Jacob has spent a large part of his life wrestling with others, at this point Jacob's wrestling with himself. His own worst enemy is him. So he says, let's get rid of the idols. Let's get rid of the trappings of the world. Let's bury them beneath the terebinth trees. Let's get back to where we worship God. So in verse five, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So the fear was legitimate. Jacob was scared these other cities would come after him because of what they did in Shechem. And it was legitimate fear to have, except for in this case, now that they're getting back on track, God takes care of that fear and makes it pointless because they're more scared of God than Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, the commentary is probably added by Moses, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, or the house of God, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. There's no repercussions from the slaughter of Shechem and Hamer's people. The terror is a word called Shitteth, <laughs> and I'm not swearing there, um, which means a fear or terror, kind of a, 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 an, an honest scared to death of. So whatever God did, he probably came to them in their dreams and gave them some fear that they should not chase these people. And if you think about it, two brothers wiped out a whole city. So there's legitimate fear to not chase them down. Verse eight, and they don't, the other cities might not know about the circumcision. Like they don't know how two guys came in and wiped out a whole city. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Deborah, remember, was... So if she was Rebecca's nurse and came with Rebecca from uh, from afar, then Deborah would have been very active in this family for a long time. She would have been like a nanny for a lot of these kids. She would have been a key part of that household. And I think it's cool how she's honored and named. 
So she died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name was called Alan Bakoth or the Oak of Weeping. And it just shows that the family mourns the loss of a dear family member and someone that was part of it. I think it's interesting that their mom's nurse is still with them, that she stays with the family. Then God appeared to Jacob and he came and when he came from Padam Aram and he blessed him and then God said to him, this has been true with Abraham and with Isaac. When God's people get back on track and purify themselves and start seeking out God, God meets them immediately, like a day later, that same day in, in, 20, in chapter 26, that same day they found living water. And in this case, he gets to back to the right place. And sure enough, God's waiting for him right there. You want to come to me, I'll meet you where you're at. Your name is Jacob. <laughs> Your name is still Jacob. You're still wrestling. You're still fighting. You're still grabbing heels. But your name shall not be called Jacob. Remember, we've already heard this. The man he wrestled with said, said this before. And God's going back and even repeating what he said when he told him to go into the into this land by Bethel. And now he's coming back now that he's there. And God's saying almost the same thing to him. So God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore. But Israel wrestles with God. Shall your name be? So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed for you, and the king shall come from your body. The word am there where he says, I am God Almighty. Note that am is in italics. That's not in the Hebrew. We've added that. So I like the Hebrew version better. I, God Almighty. <laughs> I just think it's a more powerful statement. I, God Almighty. Um, and then he renames them. He renamed them after they wrestled, and he re re renames them now that they're there. He uses the word again. Um, in other words, this relationship between God and Jacob is now restored. This gives us a lens on that last chapter, as this is what happens in this family when Jacob is not on track with God. These horrible events start filling the family, and now they're renewing again this relationship with each other. And what we see from here forward is Jacob's family is blessed. There's lots of blessings that flow. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your descendants after you. I give this land. Lots of repetition. We've heard that promise many times. That's the little Jewish kids can remember the promise that God made to the Jewish people. Um, then God went up from him in the place where he had talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel, which means house of God. And we know that because many of us go to Bethel or make fun of Bethel, right? <laughs> he indicates Bethel that God talked to him in bodily form. Uh, most Christians see this as Jesus um, because angels don't get called God. And when he see, we sees that he goes up with him and he talks with him, then God's there in person, and we know from Genesis 1 that there's God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, or God the, the Being. So if that's the case, and God's there physically with Jacob talking with them, uh, then that would be, according to Christians, that's Jesus. They, we just haven't named God yet. He has many titles. He has one name. Oil is very valuable and shows a commitment uh, Oil would have been, when you pour oil over the pillar, it's just a step up from pouring water over it or something like that. Um, we see the same promise and covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. Jacob's dream is in Genesis 28. And now here we are. Archaeology of Bethel. First of all, we don't know where Bethel is exactly. The real Bethel, the first Bethel. Um, in Eusebius, a historian, they talk about a milestone, the 14th milestone being called Bethel. Today, that's an archaeological site called Tel Baton. Um, but Eusebius is well after this period of time. So that's kind of almost hearsay with that many generations. Uh, the Palestinians believe that there's another spot called El Bala, which is the, Arama the Aramaic or the later became the... Uh, um, the Islam's version of Bethel, right? So they renamed it and they call it El Bala. There's no excavation at that site right now because it's in Palestinian territory. Um, so there, we don't know exactly where Bethel is and uh, the Eusebius uh, Talbatan dig has been fruitful. There was something there, um, but we don't, we don't know. 
Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. They're now heading, if you follow the path, they have been on a singular path going in a singular direction the whole time. It just doesn't feel that way because they use the names instead of they went south. Um, but they're about halfway to Beersheba, and there was a little distance to go from Ephrath, and Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had a hard labor. That's a gentle way for the Bible to say it was a disaster. And now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, and as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, son of sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand and good fortune. This is kind of sad that Rachel is still naming her kids after her own emotional state. Um, Rachel proves herself to be selfish till her last days. It's also sad that women had to die in childbirth as much as they did back then. So this is um, a heart-wrenching moment because Jacob loved Rachel, but God's going to give him a lot more time with Leah. And they're going to bury Rachel here um, in this area. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath or nearby where Bethlehem is. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So this site was honored for a period of time. She's not going to be buried with Abraham and Sarah and in the tomb of the patriarchs. Leah's going to be buried in the tomb of the patriarchs. So God honors his first wife, and then she's going to be buried with them. And, or that's my interpretation, that he's honoring Leah in that kind of way. Rachel's been in competition with Leah. That competition's now over. Um and she won't be buried in Mamre with, with the rest of the family. So Jacob's name has been changed twice. This is the first place where the narrator calls him Israel in verse 21. So he's been, he's, God's changed his name, but the narrator keeps calling him Jacob. So something has shifted when Rachel dies. He's a different person in some ways. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilna, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. This is an odd little note. In the Hebrew, this is kind of like an et cetera, et cetera. There's still problems with these kids, right? He's got this family. They're not very good people. Later on, they're going to take their own brother and sell him into slavery. Um, but it's kind of like an et cetera, et cetera. Stuff keeps happening in the family. There's a pause here, a break in the narrative. Um... Jacob's going to just have trial after trial. The turmoil keeps going in his family. He is not just digging wells and living a happy, peaceful life like his father did. The sons are going astray again and again and again. Selah. Like it, there's just a pause or a break there in the Hebrew. Reuben gets noted here, and it's really important to note that Reuben's noted here. So Simeon and Levi aren't worthy of carrying the line of Messiah. They have fallen. Their family tree, according to God, is tainted. This verse is really important because Reuben, remember, was the eldest, but he is tainted too. This lying uh, with his father's concubine, Bilhah, it's like he's, it's like he, in this family, it'd be like he, he just laid with his aunt. And that's not cool. And there's a taintedness to it. He will not get the honor. The fourth son, however, if you go down the line, is Judah. And Judah will be the family from which the Messiah comes from. So if this whole book is just saying, where does Messiah come from? Then verse 21 and 22 are really important because it explains why Reuben's family is not the one that Jesus is going to come from, right? So Reuben's out of the picture. Simeon and Levi are people of wrath and violence. They're out of the picture. And then you get Judah left over, okay? Um, now the sons of Jacob were 12. And the sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. It's gonna, in case you miss that, it's going to give us a reminder of the family tree. Jacob's firstborn and Simeon, Levi, um, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. And Benjamin was, was, is much younger than the rest of them, so he's kind of that afterthought kid. Sometimes you have really large families, and then there's one that comes like 10 years after all the rest of them, like Steph's mom. Mm -hmm. Right? So lots of brothers and sisters. And then, oops, 10 years later, there's another one. Um, and then verse 25, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. So Bilhah's the one that, that Reuben would have laid with. 
And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamaram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. So Isaac's still alive. He's hanging out in Mamre or Kirath Arba. And you wonder if Jacob took his time getting back to Isaac because Isaac did kind of send him away, right? So this is a hard thing for a son to come back and see a dad that kind of sent him away in the first place. That is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, and here's that phrase I like, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I think it's cool that Esau and Jacob work together and bury him. They do connect. There's a, a, a working relationship between them. They've mended that relationship, um, and they get together and they bury their dad together. I think we can get through the next chapter. Is that okay? All right. We don't want to lead with that next time. So we get to the genealogy of Esau's crew. Remember with Ishmael, when we kind of wrapped up Abraham, Ishmael, and Ishmael kind of gets sent off, does his own thing, and we get a quick genealogy that basically says, and they're not where the Messiah is going to come from, and it's the last you hear of them. That's kind of what we're doing with Esau here. He's potentially in that line, but this genealogy is going to pretty much say, He's not. This is not the family of the Messiah. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is red or Edom. <laughs> Just a reminder, he gave up the birthright, and that's when you see Edom. That's supposed to remind us of red, red, right? Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Ahileobama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basemath bore Reuel, and Ahiliom Obama, not President Obama, bore Jewish, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the person of the household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan. And he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. That's important because he's not dwelling in the land God called him to. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom, <laughs> which in the Hebrew is hairy is red. Um, don't miss that point, according to them. So Mount Seir is a region where we have lots of archaeological evidence. So a number of these names coming up do become chiefs in this region, and they have whole cities in themselves. Uh, the names are, you'll notice with Esau's kids, the names are all pagan names. He, he uses Hittite language to name his children. So he is not necessarily using the Hebrew that the rest of his family used. Uh, it seems like at this time then Esau's leaving all worship of Jehovah and family traditions behind. He's stopped trying to be a person of Jehovah and he's pretty much letting his wives name the kids and he's following that path. This move then opens up the promised land for Jacob. Jacob gets the inheritance. He gets the land, and, and, and he gets to inherit that same territory that Abraham and Isaac were settling in. Edom is southeast of Israel. They're going to block the path of Moses when Moses is leaving Egypt and wants to come back into Canaan. And if you remember, the Edomites don't let them through. So they're going to continue to be part of the narrative. Unlike Ishmael, we're going to see Edom again. Uh, and that's in Numbers 20. Um, we will see the Edomites hanging around on the planet until 1 Samuel 14 when Saul subjugates the Edomites. And then in 2 Kings 8, they rebel under King Jor Joram, and again they attack the people of Israel. So they will be a, and this fulfills prophecy, they will be a bane to Israel all the way up until Herod the Great attempts to kill all the children because he hears the Messiah is coming. So he tries to slaughter all the kids and guess what nationality Herod the Great was? He's an Edomite. So when he hears the prophecy's going to come true and those legends come, he says, kill them all, and he orders a mass slaughter of children. And Jesus and his family are not in Canaan at the time. And if you remember, they actually head down to Egypt, which means they would have gone right through Edom to get away from it all. And you think of the poetry of it all. And you're like, wow, it's like God's trying to write a script on top of world history. So God says through Joshua, Joshua, 
To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But to Jacob and his children, they got to go down to Egypt, which is where we're headed in the storyline. And in verse 9 it says, And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in Mount Seir. Wait a second, didn't we just read the genealogy of Edom? So why is this genealogy different than the next one? And the reason is, the first one is given according to birth order. This genealogy is given according to geography. So if you got out a map, they're basically going and describing who owned each city in a very methodical way. But the method is geographical, not uh, birthright. So these were the names of Esau's sons. Eliaphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliaphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, Kenaz, which makes you think we've gotten worse at naming people because some of these names are cool. So we've encouraged Grant and Katie to name their kids cool names. Like, why not? And we've made some suggestions. We like Bjorn, Uber, and I think I would add Zepho to the list. Zepho Dickers, that's a name. But that's extremely worldly of me. So in verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliaphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliaphaz, and these were the sons of Edah's wife, Esau. Don't skip over the word Amalek too quick because the Amalekites are going to show up throughout the rest of the Bible. That's a major plot line getting just a seed. Uh, Moses is going to get into a battle. Remember, that's the battle where his arms have to get held up. Mm-hmm. They're fighting the Amalekites when they do that. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is told to wipe out the Amalekites, and he doesn't. And this is another one of those world history things. And then later on, when Israel, when all the Israelites are supposed to get wiped out, uh, remember the Haman goes to the Persian king and says, well, you need to wipe out all the Jewish people? guess who Haman is? He was a king of an Amalekites who was taken over. So these Amalekites that Saul didn't kill attempt to wipe out all the Israelites later in history. And that's the story of Esther if you want to read about that. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. That's a good name. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Ahilobamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. And she bore Esau, Jeush, Ja'alam, Korah, and these were the chiefs, the sons of Esau, sons of Eliaphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatem, and Chief Amaklet. Notice they're throwing chief in front of all these names that we've already heard. The point here being that they all became chiefs. Esau got what he wanted. He got worldly power. And his kids and his family, they take territory and they take it aggressively. And for the next thousand years, they're going to own and take land. And that was in Esau's heart. He didn't really care about the things of God. He cared about the things of the world. And that's what they get. In other words, you're going to get what you set your heart after. If you want to get rich, you want to follow money, you can probably get rich. If you want to follow the things of God, you'll um, probably not get your house paid off very quick. And you'll have a dog that eats all your food. So... There you go. And the trade-off is totally worth it for both people because you're getting what you want in life. So these were, verse 17, these were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. Basemath is not a good name. You know, if you got to think of a, a feminine name, or I, I imagine Basemath, Basemath being a large woman, um, but I, and somewhat aggressive, because I just doesn't sound like a nice name. But that's being totally stereotypical. She's probably super nice. And these were the sons of Ahili Obama, Esau's wife, Chief Jeush, Chief Ja'alam, Chief Kura. In other words, all of his kids became chiefs, from all of his wives. These were the chiefs who descended from Ahili. Aho, it's got Aholibama, Aholibana, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, who is who is Edom. Just a reminder again here at the end. It's like they put a bookend on it. The sons of Esau, who is red, and these were the chiefs. Esau desired all these chiefs. He got them. He's a rich man with a poor soul. We generally get all those things we want. So the sons, these were the sons of Ser, the Horite. Who's Sarah the Horite? 
Well, Esau goes down to live in the mountains of Seir. There were chiefs there too. And in the same way that Abimelech wanted to intermarry and make one people with Jacob's family, um, I think that's what's going on with the sons of Seir, is that Esau's family became one with the sons of Seir, and we see lots of interconnections and marriages, and they become one people, and they bond together. Esau does what he what Jacob was not to do, and he just goes that way. So these were the sons of Hare the Horite. Horite means cave dwellers, uh, or they're natives in the land that lived in those hills before he came there, who inhabited the land. Lotan, good superhero name. Shabol, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, Dishan. That would be confusing if you had both Dishan and Dishan in one family because you'd get angry and then you'd call them the wrong name. I know I'm joking through this, but how else to get through genealogies? <laughs> These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Ser in the land of Edom, and the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. And these were the, okay, so remember, Timnah was one of Esau's wives, right? So we got some weird stuff going on that way. Figure it out if you want to. And these were the sons of Shabol, Alvan. Okay, here's where you start to see some weird things. You look up most of these names and they're weird things, but if you click on Alvan and click on what it means, it means wicked. This is a kid whose name is wicked. And now we're making musicals about wicked. But that's not a good name to have. But in, they just say it like that's it. Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. And these were the sons of Zibion, both Ajah and Anah. This was the Anah who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. This must be in a scroll we didn't get as part of the Bible. Because that's a story we're supposed to know and we don't. 25, these were the children of Anah, Dishan, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, Cheran, and these were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan, and these were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. And these were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anah, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan, and these were the chiefs of the Horites according to the chiefs of their land of Seir. Essentially, we named every town in the land of Seir through that genealogy. Each town had a chief. Each one of those chiefs was part of the family. They kept it in the family, and there seems to be the sons of Seir, which would have been two families that got together. Now, these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinhaba. When Bela died, Johab, so this would have been a king that ruled over all those chiefs, and they kind of elected a king. And when Bela died, Jobab, <laughs> we have names like that in southern United States, Jobab. The sons of Zerah and Bozrah reigned in this place. When Jobab died, <laughs> it's the last time we get to say Jobab. Husham in the land of the Temanites, don't confuse them with the termites, reigned in this place. And when the Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bidad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. And when Hadad died, Samlah, the Masrika, reigned in his place. And when Samlah died, Saul, Rebahath, by the river, reigned in his place. And when Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. So now we're just naming people after the Baals, which were um, pagan gods. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehethabal, and the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mesahab. So the Edomites had kings. You can see the progression in those names gets more and more with the, the pagans of the land until at the very end we see Baal being part of their names. As a family, they've left Jehovah and they're, they've pretty much walked away, and you can see it right in their names. Another piece with this is this is an archaeologist's gold mine. So as much as we might not enjoy these genealogies, when they start digging in southern Israel, and they find a new tell, and they find a coin that says J-Bob on it, they, got it, they can hook it right in. So archaeology to date uses some of these as handbooks as to where they should find their next dig site. So if they went in this order and there were cities and there's a river here, then that should be this city because it goes in order. So they can generally name their tells after what city they think it is. 
before they even start digging. So you'd think there'd be a lot more things where the Bible's proven wrong, and there really aren't. The Bible's pretty accurate when it comes to the archaeology, and he uses these. So, verse 40, And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families. Wait, did I just read this? No. No, I got to finish. All right, every word, here we go. And they're placed by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Elva. <laughs> I see Elva, and I think Elva and the Chipmunks, but it's not a cartoon <laughs> character. Chief Jethath, Chief Aholibama, named after his mama. Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mipsbar, Chief Magdael, Chief Iram. And these were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. In case you missed it, this is Esau and the Edomites are connected. That's really important because the Edomites, while these scrolls were being assembled into the scroll of Genesis, the Edomites would have been the, one of the chief and antagonists for the Israeli, Israeli people and threats to them. So God dedicates his space in the word. God gives a whole chapter of the Bible to these people. Why? And you have to wonder, and there's a, a few reasons I can come up with. You might add a few. Why would this even be in the Bible? Why would we have this very detailed record of people that aren't in the line of the Messiah? What's going on? So one thought is, remember when Esau wanted the blessing and he said, Dad, don't you have a blessing left for me? And the dad kind of was asking him rhetorical questions, but eventually later on he does bless Esau and he says you'll be there. It means God honors that blessing because Isaac did bless Esau and what we see in this chapter is those blessings were kept. Esau got everything he wanted. He got prosperity, wealth, had kids kids that became chiefs and it's there and it's important to see that God's love stays true to his promise even when he doesn't get loved back. And I think that's a beautiful thought. God blesses these people even though they totally abandon him and walk away from him. Why does God not bring judgment right away? I think God hopes that they'll return to him. And he hopes that his people will love him once again. And a third thought was, maybe there's a purpose for these texts that we're not aware of yet. Like it'll be one of those things that after the second coming or something, God will say, look at this chapter and look at how J-Bob became part of history later on. And we just don't know how Jobob gets to be part of history yet, but there'll be something there. Or there's some archaeological dig that'll come up that'll be part of our future that ties into these things too. There have been other passages of the Bible that made no sense at all until Jesus came and died and was rose again. You can look at the book of Isaiah. There's a ton of it. Jeremiah, all the prophets. There's these mentions that really don't make sense outside of Jesus Christ. Well, Part of the promise is Jesus is going to come again, and we don't know to what degree. There's parts of the Bible we don't fully understand um, that will make a lot more sense later. It's hard to imagine that for this chapter, but it's an entire chapter in the Word of God. That's precious real estate. And you'd think if every word of the Word of God is inspired and essential and good for our learning and training, there must be more of a reason to this chapter than what I can see humbly. Um, but otherwise, I can just enjoy the funny names. And that's a good thing, too. So we ended on that. When we come back, we pick right back up with the story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. And we get into much more well-known chapters in the Bible. But let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Lord, we know horrible things happen. We can have chapters of our life, Lord, where we don't talk to you, we don't think of you, and we don't mention you. And Lord, we can have chapters in our life where we all we do is serve you and honor you and bless you. Lord, help there to be far more chapters in our life where we're servants of a living God and that we bow before you with our lives. Help us to humbly come before you, Lord, as we gain achievements and college degrees and jobs and promotions and all of those things. Lord, let none of that get in the way of us serving you. Lord, let us not fall short of leading our families, blessing our spouses, blessing our future children and current children, Lord, and our parents. Lord, help us to minister to those around us and not fall short in those duties uh, like Jacob did um, so that we don't have to repent and we don't have to go through trials to learn those things. Let our trials be ones that are in your name. Let our trials be ones that we're blessed through because we're doing what you've asked us to do. Let us never go partway to the Holy Land. We want to go all the way to the Holy Land because we want to avoid the nastiness 
that happens when we only give you part of our lives. Uh, Lord, we just want your blessing. We pursue it and we go after it like, uh, like Jacob did. And we want to hold on to you until we get it. Um, so Lord, help us not fall back from that. Help us to return to our first love um, and, and do that. And Lord, help us to be more scared of you than of what's in the world. A lot of Jacob's problems were because he was scared of what people would think of him. Lord, screw that. Let us never be cautious about what people think about us. Let's be people of God, people of honor, and let people think about us whatever they want to think about us, Lord. But we want to live for you, and we're so much more fearful of disappointing you than we are of disappointing any other person on this earth. So, Lord, help us to serve you with our whole heart in honor and truth and glory. Thank you for your word, even the chapters that we don't quite understand. Um, And, Lord, help us to just have ears to hear and eyes to see when you want us to see or learn things from those chapters, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.